This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I've been working on a very special project with climate farmers for the last few months, and I'm proud to say that we're finally ready to announce our new pioneer program for farmers in Europe. For this round, we've partnered with a longtime hero of mine, Darren Doherty, and his Regrarians platform to bring the most complete regenerative farm training program together with our unique Carbon Plus credits for transition finance assistance. The Regrarians online program is built around their expanded scale of permanence through which you'll learn essential elements of holistic management, key line design, farm infrastructure development, soil health, business and finances, and so much more. All of this will be accompanied by access to some of the biggest names in regenerative agriculture around the world through our skill exchange calls, expert panel discussions, and a chance to get dedicated attention from some of the best ag consultants in your region, as well as guidance through the application process to our Carbon Plus credits. Along the way, I'll be leading weekly coaching calls for the entire group, and you'll be able to interact and ask questions to your peers and the whole Regrarians network with access to their workplace community. All of this amounts to the most thorough and robust program to guide you through your journey to profitable regenerative farming. Whether this is your first introduction into agriculture, or you're a seasoned veteran who's been growing for decades, whether you're only planting a small farm, or you're managing thousands of hectares, you'll find everything that you need to make the journey as smoothly and confidently as possible. Now, applications will only be reviewed until the 5th of November, and there is a limit to how many people we can accept into the program, so don't hesitate. Even if you're not farming right now, I'll bet you know someone who would benefit immensely for this kind of guidance and training, so make sure to recommend it to them as well. For more information on how to apply to become a pioneer farmer, you can follow the link in the show notes or go directly to climatefarmers.org. I can't wait to see you there. Hello and welcome back everyone. Today is going to be the start of a unique journey with a very special guest. Now for a long time I've been working to connect the pieces between ecological health, regenerative methods of farming, and the health of the human body. Though many of you will find the connection between those three elements very intuitive, I've been working to find experts and practitioners who've illuminated some of the essential pieces of that puzzle throughout the course of this podcast. Now, up until now, most of the discussions on this show have focused on just one of those elements at a time, but today we'll begin with the first episode of a three-part series with Graham Sate, who has made it his life's work to marry these disciplines and train farmers, healthcare professionals, and ecologists around the world in the importance of caring for our bodies and our ecologies as a single organism that requires all of the pieces to be in place for optimal function. Now, Graham Sate is the internationally acclaimed author and educator who co-founded Nutritech Solutions, or NTS, and Nutrition Matters, as well as hosting the Nutrition Farming Podcast. He has written hundreds of published articles and the popular book, Nutrition Rules. Graham has formulated many of the soil health and human health products for which NTS is renowned, and he has developed all of the nutrition programs that are the keystone of their proactive management approach. Graham also owns Nutrition Farm, which comprises of two distinctly different properties dedicated to the production of nutrient-dense, chemical-free food with forgotten flavors and enhanced medicinal qualities. Now, one of these farms is based in a subtropical zone on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia, while the other is situated in the coldest region of Queensland near Stanthorpe. 
Now, this allows them to demonstrate nutrition farming principles in both tropical and temperate regions. Because our conversation turned into a marathon of learning, I decided to release it in three parts, which will make it easier to process and find which parts to go back to in order to review some of the information later. In the first of these three sessions, Graham reveals the incredible personal story of how he came to dedicate his life to the health of people in the earth, and how it led him down a path that became the companies and the work that he's famous for today. From there, we quickly dive into the issues facing the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry, different soil testing devices that anyone can use to quickly assess the health of the microbiome in the ground, and how the work of those microorganisms can release essential minerals like silica into plant-available forms. Graham has an incredible wealth of knowledge, and you'll quickly see why I chose to break this interview into parts, because every snippet contains enough information for a show by itself. Now, with all that said, let's hand things over to Graham. What do you say we just start from the beginning? I'm really curious as to know how you became passionate about the connection between how the land is managed and how this affects human health. It was, it was kind of a strange um journey into into this thing 26 years ago I had a um, I had a daughter who was hit by a car and horrifically injured and, and was in a coma and was sort of bouncing between life and death and you know you don't sort of realize when you sign up as an organ donor that, that they're going to come to you each day and say look she's only ever going to be a vegetable we've got little Susie waiting on her kidneys and little Jane waiting on her eyes or whatever uh, and I sort of hung in there and refused to turn the machines off as they'd sort of requested and uh, and, and, and then all the machines she was tied just started beeping at once and basically it was they said this is brain death approaching and so I'm not conventionally religious but I kind of know there's something there so I kind of for the first time in my life ever made a deal that should she survive against the odds I would do something of more value other than just being a successful businessman and making money I've got degrees in psychology and sociology but I had a whole series of retail businesses at that time um, and 20 minutes after making that deal she came out of the coma and that evening, I had a sleepless night and come up with the whole concept. I developed um, at that point some some kind of passion for for the soil and for soil science, and had begun sort of that journey. And when I sort of debated about what would be the most uh, the biggest thing I could give back, kind of thing uh, of value, I decided that I'd become an expert in soil nutrition, plant, animal, human nutrition. I lectured doctors on human nutrition, and I didn't realise at that point the profound link between soil health and planetary health that was that was later probably in the last decade that suddenly that that's become increasingly clear that you know this whole story of humus and the carbon cycle and sequestering carbon in the soil viability and humus and so forth it's been a more recent understanding but it didn't take much research and so forth right from the start to recognize that we are what we eat and what we eat comes from the soil and the soil's pretty much a shadow of what it used to be with their the modern sort of extractive uh, agricultural model and so I began learning all the sort of uh, dynamics of, uh, of, of microbial life and, and mineral relationships and the whole story of, of nutrition. And that's how the whole thing started. Wow, that's a remarkable story. And I've heard this from a lot of people that they've had massive changes in their lives that have come about from some sort of health emergency or climate emergency, sometimes in the case of farmers. And it seems like this is the catalyst that really connects for people just exactly what it is they need to be doing in order to make real and systemic change that can also affect and improve other people's lives. And I'm wondering, 
how did we get to this point in the first place? I mean, nobody goes out there trying to make a lower quality uh, food product. And yet, I mean, if, if we look historically, it, it began with, you know, this very simplistic uh, concept of justice, uh, basically that the, the initial testing, burning of plant matter every 100 kilos produces five kilos of ash, and that's predominantly where the minerals are. And that very basic analysis of minerals um, that suggested that NPK was the basis of the whole thing, and we could make NPK and, and dormant armaments batteries. And we began this, you know, previously for for hundreds of years, we'd practiced relatively sustainable things where we integrated animals and, and cropping, where we uh, spelled paddocks, where we uh, integrated manures and, and we put in green manure crops. It was all just part and parcel of farming. And then suddenly we had this new thing, you could put it on from a bag. You could just, you, you could make NPK fertilizer. It was very simple. It made farming a lot more. And initially there was a tremendous response to, that, to those minerals. Um, and you know, basically the simple fact is that the first cell oozed from the Precambrian Ocean containing 74 minerals, uh, and many of them were still discovering their roles, and there's no accidents in a perfect blueprint called nature if the 74 minerals there, they actually all do something, and many of which we've yet to discover. But then we dumbed it down to every time you remove a crop, you take a little bit of everything uh, off that soil, uh, and we put just three things back. I mean, we recycling, we were recycling those things with animal manures and, and with green manure crops and the whole, that whole um, kind of um, mixed farming model. And then we sort of moved into this monoculture model, model increasingly with this really, really dumbed down nutrition. And if you look historically, it was only 10 to 15 years before we started seeing pest and disease pressure, unlike anything we'd seen previously. And rather than say, there's that link to this dumbed down nutrition, which of course it was, um, science stepped up the plate and said, okay, Let's, uh, let's develop these rescue chemicals to save the day. And so we began this process uh, of chemical farming, solving problems rather than you know, basically addressing, treating symptoms rather than solving problems. And, and, the, and the ludicrous side of that is if you look at the figures every year, 14.7% increase last year in total chemical use globally, 14.4% the year before that, 14.1%, 13.9, 13.6, 13 13.4, every single year, since we start for 10 decades, we've increased the amount of chemicals we've put into the equation, but wait for it in terms of sustainability every year, without exception, there's more and more pest and disease pressure. It's literally the definition of unsustainable, putting more and more on to less and less response, but that's been the model. Uh, and farmers have, have got into this monoculture model where you know, it's get, sort of got, you've got to get bigger or get out in many instances. And, and very commonly, certainly in this side of the world, uh, large mortgages, huge debt, and they've got a model with this, this chemical extractive model that at least they know for sure that they're going to be able to, well, not for sure, but they're fairly confident because they've done it for a while. Even though they recognise they're putting in more inputs and probably seeing more issues, um, they at least are paying off their mortgages and can send their kids to school and so forth. So there's a real reluctance to mess with something that's at least delivering on some level. And you can't make a mistake. There's no there's no leg room to make a mistake. So it makes it really difficult for them. But what I have discovered amongst the various infield monitoring tools that can help with that kind of paradigm shift, because uh, you know we, we talk about what I call nutrition farming, there's minerals, microbes, and humus, and the interplay between those three things. Uh, and the microbial side, of course, is quite difficult because it's, it's invisible if you're brewing specific microbes uh, or you're working with strategies to increase their numbers. I mean, how do you monitor that? But the advent of this very simple and expensive tool called the microbiometer, an American woman who'd worked, uh, had, I think, five patents in testing blood, 
retired, had uh, a, a little bit of a, a farm and recognised that we don't know anything, we can't really simply mo um, monitor the soil biology. And so she developed this very simple strategy that's maybe not as good as a DNA test, but it's tremendously valuable in terms of where's your starting point, what works to improve that total microbial biomass. And it, it's not just a measure, it's, it's indiscriminate. It doesn't measure fungi, bacteria, protozoa, nematodes or whatever separately. It just gives a total microbial biomass. But my findings prior to COVID, when I was traveling to 25, 30 countries a year, teaching and walking many, many hundreds of fields, my finding was that there was no exception, never. The best block uh, had the highest microbial biomass and the worst block had the lowest. And that's huge in terms of a paradigm shifting potential for farmers because suddenly this soil, which was seen as something you stood the plant up and threw some chemicals at, suddenly you realize that this life between beneath your feet this mass diversity of organisms be determined your property because you can anywhere you can go. Where's your best block? Where's your worst block? Test them, and always the best block. Not all, sometimes, always the best block will have be much much higher than the worst block. And then you know, oh my God, I, I look after these guys; they look after me, and that's a huge mindset change that can make a phenomenal difference in terms of getting people to think along this regenerative and biological pathway. Absolutely, and it seems like there are some very close parallels in the use of chemicals in agriculture and the proliferation of pharmaceuticals in human healthcare. And yes, it's massive, massive, it's a massive parallel. I mean, the reality is, if we look at that parallel, if we look at the bankruptcy of a symptom treating system when both of them qualify, and, and veterinary science is no difference. Um, but if we look at that story, I mean, the, the largest killer on the planet is heart disease followed very closely by, by cancer will take over probably at the end of this year. Um, I mean, there is, for the first time in a long time, an infectious, an infectious disease that's in the top five now with COVID. But the third largest killer is now prescription medicine. I mean, our medicine has become our third largest killer, and that's based on what's called multiple drug therapy and the fact that in the case of the Americans, you're on 17 medications on average at the age of 60 years, and there's lots of cross uh, contamination or, or mixtures and new chemicals formed with drugs and so forth that, that contributes to their toxicity effectively. Uh, so it's, it's the same thing. We're increasing our use constantly. We're having, we're having, we're increasing. It's moved up from being number eight to number three now, prescription medicine. So it's a very, very similar model. And if we look at the parallels between human health and soil health, I mean, it, it's really remarkable, basically, that the, the plant is photosynthesizing the most important single process on the planet, producing glucose, the building block of everything, pumping half of that glucose down to the roots and 60% of that half pumping out from the roots. So, so why on earth would you take your most precious substance, glucose in combination with minerals does everything and give it away? And of course, it's, a, it's, an, it's an example of um, you know, a, a universal principle and, 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 and learning from nature is the perfect blueprint um, there at the nexus and the most important process on the planet is arguably the most important principle. And that principle is give and you shall receive. The plant, of course, gives away 30% of its precious glucose in return for this army of organisms sitting open mouth around that root, which, which is where all, they all accumulate. Uh, and they're fixing nitrogen, solubilized phosphate, delivering minerals. There's a microbe behind every mineral during nitrogen fixes and manganese reducing organisms and potassium solubilizers, and the list goes on. Uh, and and so, so, so it's all about this external stomach. We've got this direct. We've got a thirty-foot digestive tract that houses that houses ten trillion. Sorry, a hundred trillion organisms. The total number of cells in our body is ten trillion. 
and we've thought of ourselves physically as kind of a sack of cells with a whole separate thing called a you know a soul kind of thing perhaps if you think that way but physically we're this sack of this community of cells that interrelate and so forth that allows us is what, what we are physically and now we're sort of changing that perspective and saying oh my god we've got this 30-foot tube called a digestive tract that's got 10 times more of the total number of cells than our whole body we're actually a joint organism and so the discovery is that the microbiome affects every aspect of our health massive new research relative to brain health. The brain of gut, of course, is for a long time, has been called the second brain. But we see the study with manic depression in Australia, where they took people with long-term bipolar disorder, uh, and they did this thing called a fecal transplant, where you basically nuke their, their, their gut and kill everything. And it's a whole group of antibiotics required to kill this quite diverse community that live in your gut. Then they pay someone $400 to poo, uh, that's what you get if you're donated to this thing. It's quite a good job. You try and get two poos a day. It's quite good money. I don't know how you describe your job. But uh, you pay someone who's bomb-proof, who's got a really amazing system, and you do a lot of analysis to determine that. Um, and you brew their poo and basically put a tube up their bottom and, tra and translate someone's entire microbiome into your system. And in that research, they got an 83.6% cure rate of long-term manic depression by just changing the gut organisms. So we're recognizing that every, our, immune, our immune system, 85% of our immune system is down there in the gut learning from the gut organisms. It's a massive story in that context. And if we look at that context and recognize that that life within is of such huge importance, just as the life beneath the plant's roots, the external stomach that the plant feeds uh, is doing very much. And if we look at the compounds produced by our organisms to look after us, their host, we find that there are six or seven or seven or eight B vitamins. There are a whole right suite of, 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 of substances that are identical to the organisms that are feeding the plant because we now know that those eight B vitamins are actually plant growth stimulants and are produced by, by bacteria specifically, but there's a whole range of other substances that directly mirror uh, what's happening our organisms and their host and the plant and the organisms, the plant, which is, of course, the host of the organisms beneath its roots. So it's a tremendously powerful parallel between the two. And of course, we've assaulted our life within in much the same way as we've, uh, you know, with many things. I mean, antibiotics, of course, are indiscriminate are probably the single largest cause, but the very close second is just food grade stabilizers. I can pick someone's health walking behind them in the supermarket and looking how much processed food's in there because the only reason that food will sit on the shelves of a football field size, football stadium size building uh, for two years is because you added varying degrees of what are called food grade stabilizers and they kill single cell organisms and you've got a gut full of them. And when you take your, your child's uh, shoveling back the cornflakes with two and a half percent of sodium benzoate, uh, for example, why would you think it stops working? And it's one of the key players that's knocking the hell out of our gut organisms. So it's just really important to understand the, the precious nature of looking at and then when we look at the agriculture story and we look at you know there's disputes surrounding something like glyphosate at the moment and we look at glyphosate's mode of action uh we find that that, 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 that there's this quite serious impact on gut organisms and a subsequent impact on our immune system relative to our immune system learning from the gut organisms and so we see autoimmune disease now directly many of them directly including autism directly linked to the growth of the sales of glyphosate. So, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that that chemical in the quite near future won't be here. There's, I, 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 would, I was at a conference with the local head of Bayer recently where I was speaking and said, you must be uncomfortable with 3,500 
uh, lawsuits in the wings, and he said try 15,700 and increasing by 100 a week. I mean, because the last two that we've gone through were a billion dollars a piece for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the proven link. So they are in some kind of trouble in the future unless they do some very, very expensive mass payout to try and satisfy it. When I was in Canada prior to COVID, every single ad on television was, if you've been using glyphosate, if there's any non-Hodgkinson's in the family, call us, we'll take the case free. And that was every ad. Every ad break, there was a different lawyer saying the same story. So, you know, we've got to recognise the writings on the wall with that particular chemical uh, and, and start making adjustments and learning how we can do without it. Wow. Yeah, and the way that it was explained to me to, to make the parallel is that as moving organisms, we have to carry our entire microbiome within ourselves. And that's what allows us to actually break down the food. And our food may have whatever amount of nutrition, but if it's not broken down through this, this long chain of microbiotics uh, that actually makes it available to our system, it's not gonna work. And for plants, because they don't move around, that digestive tract is external and they feed it through root exudates. And if those, uh, if those bacteria, if those microorganisms, if those fungi are not present, doesn't matter what sort of nutritional profile is in the soil itself, it's not going to be made available to those plants. And no, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and so when we, you mean, sorry, I'll just not say this while I think of it. Uh, when you mentioned fungi, it is, um, it, it is absolutely critical because what we're finding and working in 57 countries with teams of agronomists in each of those countries, we're finding that of, of all the ratios, we talk about key ratios amongst minerals, but of all the ratios, probably the most important is the fungi to bacteria ratio on the soil. And what's good about that simple, cheap little tool I mentioned that measures total microbial biomass, it also measures the fungi to bacteria ratio. And that ratio uh, is skewed in favor of, of bacteria in almost every soil you look at. You know, it should be one to one, we find it almost with every crop, even though they say, oh, your field crops are probably bacterial dominated and, and, and orchard crops are fungal dominated. What we're finding is one to one works best almost for everything. Mm. And miles from one to one, it's usually 90% or 80% bacteria and 20% fungi, that kind of thing. And when you change that, that's what changed your bottom line. That's what that's what you notice the difference in your bank account and the less pressure and the more fun farming. So it's it's a tremendous uh, recognition. I had a very large conference just before COVID uh, in New Zealand. We had speak uh, we had farmers as guest speakers on a five day conference, uh, one a day from five countries, and every one of those large scale farms had the same story. When they approved improved their fungi to bacteria ratio, everything started turning around. So it's that significant. In that context. Sorry for interrupting. What were you going to say? No, not at all. There's a bit of a delay. I don't mean to interrupt you either. Um, it seems to me that there's this baseline reset syndrome. With every new generation, we lose the reference as to what is possible from a healthier system because we are inheriting it in a degraded form. And I would imagine that you have reference to quite a bit more healthy food and natural living than I do, given our own age difference. But just in general, the nutritional value of the exact same food products, let's say apples to apples, you know, or, or, or vegetables that uh, we're used to eating, don't have a fraction of the mineral and nutritional content that they did just a few decades ago. And how can we get back to this when many of the generations now have no reference to what it looks like and don't know what's possible of their own state of health for this lack of reference? Well, I mean, basically taste is the key. And most people, you know, even in a recent research in the US where they were looking at, uh, would you prefer organic 
or food with forgotten flavours. The majority of people said that well, they didn't understand that the two are actually interrelated, but most people said they want their flavour back. They want, you know, and the deal is that flavour is nutrient density, flavour is shelf life, flavour is medicinal qualities. The better it tastes, the better it literally is. Uh, and so, and everyone responds to flavour, you know. So, so basically that concept of producing more flavoursome food is a great marketing tool for selling that food. I mean, I've got three research farms and one of them is a very large apple farm or 18,000 trees. Uh, and the apples, I mean, we're, we're putting minerals, microbes and, and humus in the form of humates and compost and so forth on a weekly, not compost, but certainly the liquids on a weekly basis, vertigating and foliage combination always with microorganisms uh, and, and whatever minerals are required according to testing. And the flavours just, people just say, oh my God, you know, when they taste uh, fruit, they haven't tasted apples like that forever. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how you sell stuff. And that's what, that, that makes it really easy when people start seeking that, that champagne food. Uh, that's, that's the driver to turn things around. But the other thing, of course, is just, is, is just convincing and demonstrating to farmers that uh, the old school concept of organics was about basically, you know, a sacrifice was involved. You fell in a heap. Um, you hoped at some point you made up for that because you've got higher, higher premiums for your produce. And that's absolute nonsense. It's just this regenerative thing is a sort of hard science-based approach that it's just a different road to Rome. You've got to understand all the mechanics of it are much more than just chucking on some MPK and some chemicals to solve the problems. But you can out-yield. I work with Triscoll's Berries, their organic division, 1.1 billion, out-yielded their conventional division by 9% last year. So, so don't anyone tell, try and tell me that you can't do it because there's many people doing it and we're doing it, you know. It's just knowing how to do it and understanding the mechanics of, a, of that regenerative approach, just understanding that you're working, you're looking after the soil life, everything you do impacts uh, the soil positively or negatively and you try and make it more positive than negative. And there's key ratios that you chase and you've got to monitor leaf tests. It's just so basic, a tissue test. It's such a basic concept as just saying, what do you want, plant? Oh, that's what you want. Okay, here it is. Usually as a foliar because you've got to bypass the reasons that the leaf test doesn't match the soil test because you'll see a soil test and say, well, that it's going to match the leaf test, but very rarely doesn't match. And that's because of the interplay between minerals. Every mineral uh, impacts positively or negative, uh, negatively another or several other minerals. Calcium affects seven minerals directly. For example, that's one of the reasons you fix calcium in the soil before you do anything else. We call it the trapper of all minerals. It directly impacts positively or negatively. If you've overdone lime, it shuts down seven minerals. If you've underdone it, you don't have the stimulatory capacity to pull up, to have optimum access of those seven minerals. So you take care of calcium first. It's all of those kind of, there's many, many things. I took the days on it, but it's that model that, uh, that, that makes a difference. And then, you know, and what happens when you get into this kind of biological regenerative approach is that I call it nutrition farming. But when you become a nutrition farmer, the passions, you know, you just, it's so much fun, you know, it's so much more fun to be working with a system rather than against it. It just changes everything. Yeah, that's very much in line with the farmers that we work with in my own experience as well, because actually the last time I was in Australia, I was working for these large industrial vineyards out in, in Victoria. And since moving from there into permaculture and regenerative farms, there's no difference in the, the enjoyment of the work. I mean, you go from being a, 
minor functioning machine doing repetitive tasks over and over again with a, a uniform, uh, not only workday, but intention of output to one that is dynamic and collaborative and changing constantly and interactive with the things that you are, are helping to steward. It's, it's night and day yeah. difference. And now you were just talking about the different tests that help to determine the actual health. And we've been hearing tons of anecdotal evidence, as well as people referring to different types of tests to uh, verify the quality or the health of both their soil and their plants. And I'm wondering from yeah. your side, which of these tests do you really rely on to give you the best picture of what's really happening? Because there are so many that are perhaps incomplete or just measure a certain aspect and it's hard to know which ones are really going to give you definitive results. Yeah, so I'm very keen on the microbial test that I mentioned, the simple little microbiometer. It's just you can buy it on Amazon. Um, that, that's, from, from a microbial perspective, a simple, inexpensive in-field uh, tool that can, you, can help, you can monitor your progress along the biological path. Um, you know, as a measure of sort of minerals and microbes, because they interplay, a simple thing like a refractometer is as valuable as that. So you understand the whole concept. You take, you take some leaf, you, you, you use a garlic crusher, or sometimes you need something a bit more strong, stronger than that. You squeeze a little bit of juice under the face of this little sloping tool. The light refracts through the dissolved solids in the sap, and you're measuring your skill as a grower, literally. You're measuring nutrient density. You're measuring you know, amino acids, sugars mainly, but sugars and amino acids. You're really measuring plant health and it's called BRICS levels and the higher the BRICS the better and basically it varies between root crops and most other crops and root crops you're aiming for eight degrees BRICS or higher and for every other crop not every other crop but the majority of other crops is 12 or higher and the higher the better but what you find is there are no exceptions if you've got insect pressure because this is an, this is understanding the role of insects insects are garbage collectors insects take out substandard food and you will there will never be an exception. You've got insect pressure in one field and you don't have it in the other field. The field with insect pressure will always, not sometimes, always have a lower BRICS level because it's called in the insects with that, that substandard. And, and very commonly say, so what causes that? Well, you know, lack of nutrition, a misunderstanding of nutrition, over-application of, of nitrogen very commonly, which is a very strong, like if you over-apply nitrogen, a, a large percentage is end, ends up in the plant in the nitrate form. And nitrates are always uptaken with water and, and they don't stop. If it's there, they'll take it up. They take it up with water and there's a nutrient dilution factor. So you'll see if you're monitoring with the BRICS level and you put out a decent dose of nitrogen, usually too much of a dose of nitrogen at one time, the BRICS levels fall, fall and then you've, you're far more pest susceptible. So that's just a simple tool. Then there's, um, you know, there's some quite good sort of infield tools. Now, there's one, uh, one of my friends in Western Australia who's developed a tool that measures seven things, and you just plug it in, uh, you plug it four inches into the soil, and you've got a little box, and it measures it. And it's quite reliable. It does NPK, which is handy to monitor those three minerals, but it does things like conductivity and soil temperature and soil pH. Uh, I can't remember what the seventh one is, but anyway, it's got uh, seven things that it measures. You just plug in and plug in, and you've got that immediate um, root, root zone measurement sort of thing. But we do things like SAP pH is, uh, is quite, uh, quite valid. Uh, and, and SAP pH is, is just basically 6.4 is where you want most crops to be from a SAP pH perspective. But the, if the SAP pH is more acidic, it's usually a lack of the key alkalizing minerals, calcium, magnesium, potassium. And there's a process of exclusion that can allow you to determine which one of those it is. 
Uh, in fact, you could just look at your refractometer for calcium. And when you're looking through and seeing those two hemispheres, the division between the two hemispheres needs to be as blurry as possible. If you're looking and you've got the central axis, zero to 32 bricks, and the two hemispheres cross that, uh, you know, you don't really want to be able to, you, you want to be, so you can't tell whether it's 12 or 13, it's just a fuzz joining those two numbers. But if you've got a sharp, distinct line, like an old school fuel tank, um, which is pretty much what it looks like, that's almost always a screaming calcium shortage that you need to do something about. So that simple meter can also be a very good guideline to the very important presence of calcium. Understand that calcium is, um, you know, cells, you know, if you're going to be proactive in, in trying to move away from chemicals, I mean, the starting point is say, well, how does the fungal disease get into my crop? Well, it drills through quite a substantial cell wall to get to the cytoplasm, which is like the yolk of an egg, and that becomes a food source to allow you to subdivide and the powdery mildew grows on the underside of your zucchini leaves sort of thing. So, but first it's got to get to that wall. And if you're a small sap sucker, you've got to chomp through a substantial cell wall to get to that same yolk, that cytoplasm. And the obvious thing is, well, what's it made of? What strengthens the cell wall? And how can I make a difference in terms of creating that barrier? And that's calcium at luxury levels on a leaf test. We want it right at the top zone. If it's 0.4 to 0.6, the acceptable for that crop, we want it at 0.6 because of that role amongst many. And equally important to calcium is the trace, is not trace mineral, but the mineral silica. And there have been nine international silica conferences in the last 12 years. And silica is like the flavor of the month in agriculture now. It's not even an essential nutrient, but is absolutely critical with calcium for that cell strength. And now we find with silica this amazing finding. There's been seven published papers just recently. Uh, on the subject that silica is actually an immune eliciter. And immune elicitations are a really good thing for farmers to play with because there are no exceptions. Every known immune eliciter, whether it's something like salicylic acid or uh, some of the many, many compounds, including the hormones found in kelp, whatever you're using that's been shown to boost immune response, which is quite measurable now, um, that also induces a yield response. You always get a higher yield if you boost immunity. And so people using substances like potassium silicate have been reporting these 20 and 30% yield increases. And I've scratched my head in explaining that, of course, there is, you know, the, the translocation of nutrients is uh, silica's the main building block of phloem and xylem. So you can have better translocation and that would account for some kind of yields, but not those kind of increases. And then when you see the, all these studies pour out about immune elicitation, you suddenly realize that, uh, that, that that always increases yield and sometimes quite substantially, and that's the bigger player. So silica has become quite a story in the equation. And of course, it was never even measured or considered to be of, of any role in plants. But I was in India. Uh, I used to travel into India twice a year prior to COVID. Um, and I came across this article in an Indian journal uh, from a woman professor who had been analysing some ancient Ayurvedic texts and she was suggesting that in, in 3,000 years ago in India according to these texts Indian agriculture was governed by four microbial preparations all of which use lactofermentation which is a huge thing for extraction we use it all the time on my farms it's something I really really promote for do-it-yourself microbrewing uh, is the concept the potential to pull out things like garlic you can pull out so many compounds from garlic that then become a value extracting them. Well, that's what they were doing. And interestingly, there was one form of hibiscus that was in all four of those herbal formulas, but there were four or five different herbs, but one central one in all the formulas. 
Uh, and one of them was the nitrogen fixation to stimulate nitrogen fixing organisms. One of them was to stimulate phosphate solubilizing organisms. One was to stimulate potassium solubilizing organisms. And fourth, fourth one was to stimulate silica solubilizing organisms. Because what we know is silica is the most abundant mineral. I mean, the core of the earth is largely silica. The sands are uh, are silicates, clays are aluminosilicates, the soil is full of silica, but the plant available form is called monosilicic acid. And it's just at 20 parts per million in most soils when it needs to be 100 parts per million. And something we've done is taken it, it appears to be a microbial thing, and we haven't even identified the specific organisms responsible, but it, we've knocked out because because organic soils usually have more than, than inorganic. So we know it's a chemical or a group of chemicals, and there is some suspicion that glyphosate might be involved. But something's knocking around the organisms that makes it silica into the plant available form is, is the finding. So, uh, so, so then it becomes, how can you change that and what can you do? And we teach all of those kind of strategies to bring silica back into the equation. Okay, I'll stop there for this session and pick up again next week when Graham and I explore valuable infield monitoring tools, the connection between the health of the soil and the health of the human body, and how tracing back common deficiencies in our own bodies has the potential to be remedied by recovering the nutrients that have been lost in our plants, which are grown in depleted or microbially inactive soils. Graham has such an incredible way of making all of these connections and explaining them in a linear and digestible way. And for that reason, I really hope that you'll join me for the next session in this series. So before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free for you, and unlike other social media platforms that were created with complex algorithms used to mine your personal data in order to sell you more junk, this channel was created for the free exchange of ideas, stories, and mutual support among the growing regenerative pioneers. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be exploring questions like, how do you monitor and check in on both the health of your plants and your own physical health? Do you use any tests or look for particular signs or indicators to give you important information? Just check out the link on our Instagram account or on the homepage of this website at regenerativeskills.com to join today. That's our show for this week. Don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. <laughs>